What's going on, ladies and gentlemen, saints and ain'ts, and welcome to Lactic Acid. I am your host, Dominique Smith. As always, thank you all so much for your continued support for this channel, for this platform. We're continuing to grow, and I am truly thankful for each and every one of you. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button. Go ahead and subscribe to anywhere you get podcasts. If you like it, leave a like and uh, leave a nice review as well, if you don't mind. It helps the podcast grow. It helps more people find it, and I would definitely appreciate it. I told you we're celebrating National Nurses Day, National Nurses Week, and I hope you enjoyed the episode with Heidi. But today we want to celebrate all the awesome professors out there, all the awesome teachers out there. Happy National Teachers Day. I have one of the best in the game that I got a chance to sit down and interview a couple months ago. Her name is Professor Lori Schantz. She is a professor teaching journalism, and I don't even think that is doing it justice at the University of Oregon. She is a difference maker when it comes to track and field and how it's covered and teaching kids, teaching you know people like myself, new ways, great techniques, innovative ways to cover the sport. And she is truly, truly awesome for the profession. I'm so, so pumped for you guys to get a chance to hear her, get a chance to know her. Um, it was a really fun episode to record. Uh, she's really helped me out on my young journey as a journalist and I'm truly thankful for her. We talked about how she got into the profession. We talked, um, you know, about her goal as a teacher, why she decided to become one um, and just some of the things like that. And and she gave a nice hot take about field events that I am so with at the end and you do not want to miss that. And so, so many great things that we covered in this episode and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it and get a chance to see how she continues to transform lives and transform careers through the power of sports journalism. Like I said, if you go ahead and like and subscribe, I would appreciate it, but I also want you to follow me on social media. Lactic Acid Podcast on Instagram, Lactic Acid underscore pod on Twitter, TikTok. I don't even know why I have it, but I still want you to follow me. Lactic Acid with Dominique Smith and YouTube, Lactic Acid with Dom Smith or Lactic Acid with Dominique Smith. There's some exclusive content that goes down on YouTube that you can only find there. And follow me on fanhubtf.com. There's That's where you can get more of the written portion of what I do, you'll get a chance to meet some awesome people and definitely stay tuned. We have uh, more nurses coming on and you'll get a chance to hear from them as we celebrate the wonderful nurses who do great things and you'll get a chance to hear about their journey as nurses, but also uh, their love for competitive running and how it, it helps them day in and day out. As always, thank you for the support and we will catch you next time. Enjoy the episode. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen, saints and ain'ts, and welcome to Lactic Acid, the podcast where the takes are fresh, the ideas are ripe, and that makes us the best in the bunch. I am your host, Dominique Smith, and today I have one of the greatest professors 
quite literally in the history of the game, she has an award that proves it. I did look that up because every journalist, if you're a journalism student, you better do your research. Um, but no, she's impacting the sport of track and field in so many ways and teaching and developing creative, innovative ways to tell new stories and to give opportunity to uh, young people like myself to do things on a bigger platform. She is none other than Professor Lori Schantz. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to come on this show. How are you doing? It is totally my pleasure, Dom, and I'm doing really well. So it's, uh, it's starting to feel really like track season, so everything is getting real. It is. Hayward's about to get up and kicking. We're so close to the outdoor season. It is going to be a fantastic year and a great busy time in Eugene, Oregon. So to get this started, I have to ask you a question that I ask everybody on this show. And so I may tweak it just a little bit. If you had to pick a superhero to describe you as a professor, who are you going with? If you do not know a superhero, I will I will surprise for any TV character. I'll take a TV character. Well, I mean, you know, Wonder Woman's kind of a cliche, right? Like if if you're um, if if you're if you're a girl, if you're growing up as a girl and watching, you know, Super Friends on Saturday morning, like I did growing up, you didn't really have a lot of options, right? Like most of the superheroes were guys. So I know you asked this, so of course I prepared just as you okay. prepared. I had to. Okay. So while I could go with Wonder Woman, I'm going to go with a deep cut um, because the other Saturday morning show I watched was Isis back in the way day. Now my husband kind of called her like a bargain basement Wonder woman which i think is disrespectful to isis but she was some kind of cool egyptian goddess or something and she had like you know fancy clothes and everything so at any rate there's very few people who know isis but i remember that show fondly i am one of those people (laughs) so i have to go look that up it's weird like before this interview when i was preparing i I like watching on television shows i've been watching the show called who's the boss with like Tony Danza and and Judith Light. That's like my go-to <laughs> as of now. So I get some of the references, but that one, I don't know. I have to add it to the list of yeah. things to explore. Um, <laughs> I definitely do appreciate that answer. Um, as I was saying in the intro, Professor Shant is one of the goats. For me personally, I can testify that she quite literally saved my life uh, last summer. I actually was preparing for this came across a picture i got stung by this stupid bee that they have out in oregon i think it was a yellow jacket or something like that when she was teaching me about like how to like write the story that i wanted to and you know the different nuances and breaking it down and i thought it was like a fly and then yeah that yellow jacket was mad but i have to say i did i was able to go back and kill it so that may not serve well for some of the listeners, but I'm sorry. You know, it, I had to kill it before it fully killed me. Uh, always being prepared, Dom, you have to be ready. In that situation, it was it was the right move. Yes. And so that was a chaotic <laughs> like hour uh, that I will never I want to forget it, but I never will forget it. But you have been teaching at Oregon since 2014. Mm-hmm. So prior to that. Uh, and we talked about it. You were a beat writer covering Penn State. And you went to Penn State. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about it briefly, you know, before the show. There's a major difference between covering sports in the Pac-12 compared to covering it in the Big Ten. 
what was the biggest, well, just tell me about your time, you know, covering Penn State athletics, Penn State football, and more importantly, having to cover night games with a newspaper, <laughs> and there's a hard deadline for the paper. Yeah, well, I started um, my second semester of my freshman year, I tried out for the Daily Collegian, which is Penn State's uh, independent student newspaper. I was an English major. Uh, I was not a journalism major. I never took a journalism class until I started teaching them. I came through a different way. So I did a lot of um, work for the Collegian. And I got tons of beats there, which was really fun. I started with women's swimming. I covered um, softball. I covered football and I was an editor there and I also covered wrestling. And the really great thing about having a situation like that is that you get to be in the press box with the professionals. So I was able to model what I did. And then I kind of came back, I graduated, I um, worked part-time as a stringer at my hometown Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I had two jobs at smaller newspapers, uh, the Progress Index in Petersburg, Virginia, and the um, Times Leader in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And then I got um, an interview with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And that was an interesting interview. I had worked for the Pittsburgh Press, which was the afternoon paper as a stringer. And um, there was a newspaper strike and the paper left standing was the Post-Gazette, which was the afternoon paper. And so at any rate, I swear I'm getting to your question, Dom. No, so, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> when, when, they, um, when they interviewed me for the, for the job, which was really to kind of write a recreation and fitness page and do some more general assignment work, um, the editor-in-chief of the newspaper saw that I had graduated from Penn State and asked me about working in State College, which is about, you know, two and a half, three-hour drive from Pittsburgh. And, you know, at this point, I wanted the job. If he had said, can you come in on Thursday nights and scrub the floors? I would have been like, absolutely. Do you also want me to come in on Tuesday nights and scrub the floors? Because I wanted that job. Yeah. So at any rate, when the job, when the job offer came, it was to be the quote unquote state college bureau. So that was very different to cover Penn State as a professional than it was as a student. As a student journalist, I was one of three or four people covering the football games, you know, two or three people covering basketball. And as a, as a professional, it was just me. And I might have somebody writing, you know, a columnist working or somebody else doing a piece. But what I had to learn to do was to write fast. And it wasn't that I wasn't totally used to that, but, you know, there were a lot of, um, you know, 3.30 Eastern time kickoffs back in the day. And our first Saturday night deadline was at about 7.30, 7.45. So you had to learn how to write the story to write running as the game was going on and then go down and do interviews and then go back and write the story again with the quotes. So you get very good at kind of <clears throat> analyzing and paying attention to the game as it goes on. I would write between quarters. By the time it got to the fourth quarter, I was writing in pieces. You know, it's, it's kind of hard, right? As a sports fan, what you want is a good close game that comes down to a wire. As a journalist, that is not always what you want. So, um, but I did get very fast and I learned how to write quickly. And that's one of the things I try to teach students now because I could do a little bit of that in college, but not as much as I eventually needed to. So how do you, so when a game goes into double overtime, so you have a, a newspaper deadline at 7.30 and working out as, as a sports clerk, I know that, you know, we were in the newsroom on Friday nights and, you know, down here in Florida, some games start at seven. Those are like perfect because that's two hours. The games that start at 7.30, that's a nightmare because print deadline is at 9.30. So when you have a game that like, 
ends at 7.45 or 8? Does it just not go to the press or can they hold it? It well it depends, right? And it depends how big it is. It depends what's going on. I was the Sunday sports editor at the Miami Herald for uh, a period of time. And when we, we had an entire separate section on college football and you would have like a Miami Florida game that started at eight o'clock Eastern and it was literally not done in time to get in there. So you would have people write like running sidebars or notebooks and you would plug the holes in the paper and it would turn around and you would fill it for the second edition. There were generally two or three additions that you could hit during the night. I mean, the story I always tell from Miami was uh, during the Beijing Olympics when Michael Phelps was going for his record medal. Um, that race started at 11 p.m. Eastern time and we needed to be literally out of the off the floor, which meant like through the um, through the print area, like onto the page by 1120. And so what we actually did there was that the reporters on site, and we had both a columnist and a, re a reporter, they both wrote ahead of time. And we edited half of their story with all the background information in it. We had a file where people were just tossing in big headline ideas, because it was certainly the big story of the day. And we had a whole file. Everybody on the copy desk, all the designers, any of the reporters who were paying attention, what we did was we had a big file, and here's options if he wins, here's options if he doesn't get it. So we had mock pages built up, we were ready for it. And then, you know, our reporters on site did an incredible job of just quickly writing it, resending the top of the story at about 1115, um, you know, and we got it onto the page really quickly. And it's a, it's a huge adrenaline burst, right? Like you have to get through that. And then, you know, I mean, I routinely worked at that job until, you know, I would get home at three in the morning or something like that. And you can't sleep because, you know, you're all jacked up on this adrenaline to get things done. So um, I used to sleep in pretty late on Sunday mornings. And then, you know, fortunately we lived in Miami. So I was able to get up and take a walk on the beach later on. Oh man. See, that's like nice. But at the same time, if it's the summer, that's brutal because it's so hot and so humid. Uh, and then I don't do walks on the beach because I did like, New Smyrna and then I got trapped in a thunderstorm because Florida is bipolar when it comes to the weather but for anyone that's not from Florida that sounds like you can keep that idea of paradise in your head um so what made you get into teaching you know as a professor so I always thought teaching would be cool when I was a little girl I had an easel and I played school and I was a teacher and I lined up my younger younger brother and younger sisters or my stuffed animals or whatever it was and I you know I taught school and I've been a nerdy student my whole life and um, the two things that happened were um, I had really good teachers and I really truly believe in paying it forward that I can't thank the people who made me who I am today. But what I can do is, you know, in, in sports all the time, we talk about coaching trees, right? And somebody has a coaching tree and I'm part of a couple of really good coaching trees. And I used to do that as a mentor. And then I eventually realized that I could do it as a teacher and have a larger reach and just have to, to go back, I was a reporter for a long time who used to avoid the office because nothing, I always thought nothing ever good could come of being in the office. Somebody would assign me a story. I wasn't outside. I wasn't in an event. And that was never good. And then I got a chance in 2004 when I worked for the Post-Dispatch in St. Louis. Um, I started at the paper too late to be able to get a credential to cover the Olympics. So I volunteered to be the Olympics editor. 
And that was a revelation to me because I'd never realized how much power the people behind the scenes have. And I was able to go to the news meeting and make a case for Olympic stories to get more space for um, columnists to be put in a different position. And I was able to have a control over the whole operation that it had literally never occurred to me in all my years of being a reporter. And so I gradually transitioned into editing. And as an editor, I realized that I was most drawn um, to the new people, to the, to the young reporters who were just out of college, to freelancers who had other full-time jobs and were hoping to break into the business and just covered football for us on Friday nights or did some weekend basketball games. And I was realizing that I was much better at working with those people than I was at working with more established people. And so that kind of planted in my head, huh, I wonder if I could teach. Uh, I was also a volunteer literacy tutor and I was working, um, doing that and just loving it, just loving the individual attention and the, and just the, the lifestyle of really helping people change their lives. And then um, I eventually left, that was in St. Louis. I went to Miami and I was the Sunday sports editor at the Herald. And then um, we eventually moved back to State College. I was a, a senior editor at the alumni magazine there. And it was closer to our families, my husband's family and mine. And you know, it got us out of a newspaper industry that was really struggling to keep middle managers, which is where I was at that time, that that was a kind of a stressful time because you know, newsrooms were shrinking. And, um, you know, I'll be honest, I took a salary cut and I wanted to make up some of that salary. And I had that teaching in the back of my head and I was approached by, um, the woman who did the scheduling for the journalism department at Penn state. She was one of the professors there. She's now the Dean Marie Harden. I owe her so much. And, um, I was asked if I wanted to teach as an adjunct, as a part-time, uh, a reporting one class, essentially the, the beginning, it was COM 260 at Penn State. And I said, sure. And I gotta tell you, I was so nervous teaching that first day. It was an afternoon class. I didn't eat breakfast. I didn't eat lunch. I was super nervous, but I walked into that classroom and it just felt like I was coming home. And it felt very much like when I was in college, the first time I walked into a newsroom and I was like, this is it. I went to college intending to be a lawyer and I came out a sports writer. And I went to Penn State intending to become, back to the alumni magazine, intending to become a um, long form magazine writer or some such thing. And I ended up realizing that what I truly am is, is a teacher. And that was when I went back, I got a master's degree in adult education and a certificate in distance education. And I just taught once per term and I loved it. And I realized that I wanted to trade. I wanted to stop being a full-time journalist, part-time teacher. And I wanted to be a full-time teacher, part-time journalist that I wanted to flip that. I do believe you can't effectively teach journalism unless you're doing some of it on your own. It's a craft. Uh, the industry is changing a lot. So you have to keep up on how it's changing, but uh, I'm definitely, I definitely found my home. I'm a teacher first. One thing that you know, is, I noticed just in school, uh, I find it interesting that you were petrified. If you're not eating two meals before class, <laughs> then that's, you're, you're, that's scared. Like it's, it's funny to hear that because that's like how I felt on my first day, like journalism class. Like I was so nervous. Like I was like, what, what am I getting into and stuff like that? And then 
naturally, you know, those fears heightened because the first thing that journalists, I don't know if you do it, but the first thing that every journalism professor makes their students do on the first day of journalism school is a man on the street story, um, which I just absolutely hate, but it, it's great, but it, it's like terrifying. Um, but it kind of gives you a glimpse of, you know, some of the things that you have to do. Um, so you got into, you just mentioned, you know, Penn State, um, and just how you got into, you know, teaching and everything. And I like to, you know, believe that, you know, for me, I'm a part of, and our Magic Boost crew, you know, we are, you know, under studies of, you know, what you've taught us. Um, and hopefully we can extend that coaching tree. <laughs> It'll be fun. You have like the Bill Belichick of journalism coaching tree, but a nicer person, you know, essentially. Um, track and field is something that is just so fluid. And so I know that you love wrestling, but what made you get into, you know, track and field? Um, I tend to like covering individual sports rather than team sports in a way. I think it's easier to get to stories. I appreciate the one-on-one -on -one competition. And I also, as a journalist, you know, I, what I try to teach students is when everybody goes right, go left. When everybody goes left, go right. So I appreciate the sports where the, um, the athletes aren't as rehearsed, mm -hmm. where the, um, there's fewer people on some level to compete with for a story and there's just some more options. And so um, when I was working in, I've always covered running. My first job um, at the Petersburg Progress Index, there was a wonderful group, the Tri-Cities Runners, mm -hmm. and they had races. And I just felt like we needed to do something else. I feel very strongly that journalism needs to reflect the communities that it's a part of. Yeah. And there was this fantastic running group in Petersburg. And so I started showing up at their races with, you know, with a camera that I was not very good at, but I can write. And so I did those two things and I ended up getting to know the team really well, getting to know the runners and getting a lot of, um, a lot of good profile stories. In addition to just literally covering the road races, you know, the five Ks, the 10 Ks, stuff like that. And I've just always looked for those type of stories. Uh, when I worked in Pittsburgh, um, the Pittsburgh Marathon was a great marathon, um, you know, still is, but at the time it, it hosted the Olympic trials one year, it got top runners. So I was really covering a sport at a pretty high level. Uh, there's also a 10K in Pittsburgh, the great race, which finishes on a downhill. So it gave you fast times, uh, you know, tore up your legs a bit, but uh, also uh, got you some fast times. And so it was, you know, we would get a lot of strong runners who came there looking for a PR or looking for something. So what happened while I was there is that I just got into those sports. Like anything else you're covering is a beat. You start to develop an interest in it. You start to develop an expertise. I started to cover the local running community. Uh, one of my jobs in Pittsburgh was to do a fitness and recreation page that walks you right up against triathletes and ultra runners and all sorts of interesting people. So that's what I did. And then, um, you know, I was able to cover the Olympics four times when I worked at the Post-Gazette and the first one was Atlanta and uh, I covered the women's marathon and wow. it was the first, I covered the men's too. I covered a, you know, a lot of different events, but I covered a lot of track and field there and it was fun. It was big time. It was amazing athletes. It was good stories. And so at that point, I just kind of kept paying attention to the sport and looking for opportunities to write about it because it was so fun. And when I came here to Oregon, um, 
I was like, well, hey, if you're going to understand Eugene, Oregon, you kind of have to understand track and field. That's part of this community. So I pitched the idea of teaching a track class because I thought that at the time it was no more than, look, this is a big thing that happens in this community on our campus. Literally, Hayward Field is literally on the University of Oregon campus. It's a five minute walk or less from the journalism building. We should be there. We should be on top of that. And it's been able to turn into so much more that has been, you know, truly special. And you, you're like in the trenches with your students. Um, you know, I noticed that at the Prefontaine Classic, you know, they're getting interviews, they're in the media um, tent in the mix zone. And so the one thing, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, prior to this, and, you know, we'll touch back to the track and field aspect in a second, was that journalism is, I don't want to say it's a revolving door, but it's like, it, it, it's crazy how fast it's evolving especially covering sports, because, you know, with the Magic Boost program, I was on the phone, you know, with my professor, a former professor at UCF a few weeks back. And I said, you know, this was eight weeks of stuff that we did not really cover when I you know, was in journalism school and I graduated in 2019. And there's so much that has changed since, you know, I started in 2016, really 2017 was my first official class. And I, w- I was talking, you know, you know, with my professor, I remember everybody was like, you need to have your reporter's notebook, like this is your life and everything. And then 2017 turns into 2018 and it goes, you need to have your phone. This is your life because you can capture so many moments on the spot. Social media is evolving and it's just such a fast paced, you know, fast twitch. It's more of a sprint it seems, and it is more of a marathon. How are you able to keep up and incorporate the new things of journalism and how to tell stories and how to, you know, just some of the things that you taught me this summer, how do you tell stories in such a unique and creative way? Um, How do you incorporate that, especially as you're trying to evolve with the times? Um, So first of all, welcome to my existential crisis that I have several times a week, um, you know, either in front of a class or, you know, in a faculty meeting or in something like that. I mean, one of the ways that I do this is I am very transparent with students and I tell them that the industry is evolving. I tell them that you're going to have to learn to be learners, that the most important thing that you can do is not learn how to use this piece of technology, which, you know, whether that's a notebook or your phone or whatever else, the most important thing you can do is understand what journalism does. You have to understand why you're there. I spend a lot of time on the why before we get to the what. I do not send students out for person on the street interviews on the first day of class. I actually have them usually interview each other, Um, but we get to that, believe me. Um, But I don't start there because I feel very strongly that you have to know the why before you know the what. And that way you can make choices as you go forward about what you're going to do and why. And so, you know, I would say I would actually say that learning journalism is like learning a multi-event, right? It's kind of like doing the decathlon. You have to do a lot of things. You have to do them all. And especially in sports journalism, you have to be able to write a quick game story um, because there are still deadlines for dead tree newspapers. And because that's part of the job, uh, you have to be able to live tweet, which is a completely different skill, but that most beat writers do that. 
Uh, you have to be able to conduct interviews. You have to be able to conduct them for podcasts, which might be different than for a directed story. You have to be able to listen because people do so many different things. And it's easy to have a hot take in sports journalism. But if you're really listening, you can get beyond that. Um, you know, you have to have some audio skills. You have to be able to go on a talk show and be able to talk about your team. Most of the beat writers I know do like a, you know, quick video afterward. I mean, I never had to do all of this stuff when I was in college. I literally wrote a story or multiple stories and went home. My first job, I did have to do everything. I took the photos. I wrote the headlines. I designed the pages. Um, I chose the stories. I literally did everything except develop the film. And that was really good practice for, you know, I say I was multimedia before anybody was calling it that, but my multimedia included like, you know, organizing box scores for the page and agate page and doing other pieces like that. So I guess I would say that, you know, what I'm trying to, you have to be able to do all the things you're not going to be able to do them all as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So like if, if you're Ashton Eaton, you know, like maybe the jab isn't your best event but you still have to do well enough at it and get enough points that it puts you on somewhere. So if you think about that, you know, here's all the tools I need to be a sports journalist. Here are the ones I'm really good at. And here are the ones that I'm going to get good enough at that it doesn't get in the other way. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just invented that analogy. Thank you. Oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> Add that to the curriculum. <laughs> Seriously, that was brilliant. Um, now that you think about it, and then it's so weird, like, you have to have social media and then you have to know how to work social media. And so technically, you know, to your point, you have to be, you know, I know at the Sentinel, they have a um, web desk editor or whatever. I forgot what it's called, but, you know, they put the stories up and, you know, they, you know, make sure it gets to social media and um, they do a lot of different things. But, you know, now, you know, there's not a photographer to go into the field with you there's not a videographer like you have to do everything yourself you have to be the promoter you know of you know the story you have to know how to use the right hashtags and you know to do all that stuff and it's just so weird how fast it's evolved I mean just a matter of a couple years you know as far as you know pictures you know people want color they don't want the plain standard black and white they want creativity and yeah to your point you know sometimes you know in writing stories you know I have a style for the podcast and then I have style you know with doing interviews and it's it's so crazy you know to your point which is a brilliant analogy you know you may not be that good at one but, you know, you have to have, you know, so many tools in your toolbox to be completely effective. For you, what would you say is kind of the biggest thing that you've learned in the past couple of years or the biggest skill set that you had to adjust and adapt to? I have to learn to be less of a writer and more of a thinker, which is why I've changed my journalism classes. I try not to teach reporting as a writing class. I try to teach it as a think like a journalist class. And when you think like a journalist, you do that across platforms. When you think like a storyteller, you're thinking about what that is. What's the complication in this story? What is the reason for this story? Why does this person matter? What are the possible hurdles? What is celebratory about this? Where do I need to hold somebody accountable? You think about all those type of pieces and then you decide which tools you're going to deploy. Um, so I think the biggest thing is that I am by default a writer. I, I, I've said this a million times to students. I see the world in words. I um, am not terribly visual. 
but what I've learned is, and I've had some of the experiences to do it. I mean, I, I turned myself into a fairly decent event photographer. You know, I'm not a real photographer, but I can go to an event and I can get you a couple photos that are going to work and I can get you some audio and I can edit and I can, you know, I can do these type of things. So I would say that the biggest shift I've made has been as a teacher and a journalist is to think about think about that. The other shift that I've seen is that, you know, journalism has, for all that it's changing so much, and much of the changing comes from, you know, technology, as you're saying, different platforms, different ways of doing, with different ways to tell a story. Uh, You know, the other thing that's changing with journalism is that it has a a very low rate of trust among, um, among, you know, consumers, community members. And so one of the things I've really learned since coming here to Oregon, which is very much a um, on the cutting edge of some of this work with engaged journalism and with a civic engagement focus and with a solutions focus and to be able to tell stories that reflect communities as they are and not necessarily how journalists impose a narrative on them. And, you know, I, I think sometimes it looks like I do I'm a little scattered. I have this life where I do sports media. I have this life where I do very core writing and reporting and editing skills because I am a writer. And then I have another part of my academic life that is very much, how do we fix democracy? How do we provide information for citizens and for community members to make their communities work? And I really feel like all of that's really related in some ways. And the way I relate sports to that is primarily that sports at their best are about building community. They bring communities together. They um, have some enjoyment in each other and they kind of make a place a place. And so I do see a connection between the kind of work that I do where we're trying to listen to, you know, groups who have been traditionally marginalized by news media and you know, the, the work I do in, in sports where maybe athletes get more of a voice rather than coaches, you know, and owners and whatever else. I mean, the, the Magic Boost program fits exactly into this. I mean, the point of the Magic Boost program is to, you know, diversify the kinds of people who are covering this sport. Track and field is a hugely diverse sport by, by you know, by, by gender, by race, by ethnicity, by body type, by all kinds of things, right? And if the only people covering it are, you know, middle-aged white men who are focused on the distance events, you're not focusing on this, the beauty of the sport as the whole. So, you know, my work, especially with Magic Boost is something that, and again, it goes back to that question that you're asking, what did you most learn? And what I've most learned is that rather than journalists imposing their narrative on a story, we need to listen better and we need to involve the communities who are the, who are part of the journalists, you know, who, who need journalism and who need people with our skills and talents, but we also need to not hold ourselves separate, which journalism has done for too long. One thing that I learned from you before I got stung by that bee in our conversation um, that goes back to you know what you just said was to be a thinker, um, but to be, and, and the hard part about that is you have to be a fast twitch thinker. Because sometimes like the story is just right there. You don't have time. You don't have, you know, the, you know, nice ability to have weeks to plan stuff out. Um, But is to be a fast twitch thinker and be a fast twitch thinker even throughout the interview. Um, You know, not all your ducks are going to be in a row. And I think that that has to help because it's not just, you know, people, the athletes don't trust 
the media because of how, you know, it's been covered. You know, I've, I've run into that on the show. Um, you know, it's, it's just, unfortunately, they think that there's this, you know, narrative, not all of them, um, but, you know, I have talked to a few that, you know, have echoed what you said. They just kind of think that someone has a story written or it's going to get written a certain way or you have to answer. That's one of the biggest things. We answer the same questions over and over and over and which it's something you know that annoys them and you understand why and we you know bring up that magic boost program and i just asked you what did you you know what have you learned in the past few years but that was such a unique program because like in the back of my head i just like if there's a traditional journalism teacher they would hate this <laughs> because it really taught you to think not just outside the box but it's like outside of what you know the globe essentially and i know that you sent us a survey asking you know things that we learned but i'm actually curious um, as someone who was one of the leaders of the program you know what is something that you've learned or that you learned um, you know, from the program, especially since round two is kicking off pretty soon. I learned so much. It's all going to show up in the class that I'm teaching this spring. And, um, it's, <laughs> it really has. I mean, I see, I see social in a different way. I see podcasting in a different way. Those are not things I've explicitly taught before or went gone through. I've seen the power of something quick, you know, of being able to turn something around. And again, it's a manner, you know, I really, I think my class right now might be a little frustrated with me, but I don't teach interviewing is asking questions. I teach it as listening. Mm -hmm. And if you just ask something little and get out of the way and then really hear what people are saying and then follow up, I think that's hugely important. And, you know, what I got from being around the magic boost, you know, the cohort who we had was just this very broad way of looking at the world like you don't have to do it like we always do it and there is a conflict there right like part of what my part of what my class does is that we freelance um, stories from NCAA championships we cover locals and for those news organizations we do need to be able to do a more traditional story here's the here's what happened in the race here's what happened I'm going to be more comfortable in encouraging students to have more of their own voice and to be um you know, to find the balance, right? I, I say all the time that um, my job is to guide journalists and storytellers on their way. It's not to lecture to them about you have to do this my way. It's to be a guide going forward. And I think Magic Boost, because of the whole team, you know, the, the leaders of the program, uh, this, all of you who took part, was just, I have a whole notebook of stuff. Like, I'm going to try this. I learned this. I'm going to try something else and we'll see what happens. And, you know, the other important thing is you have to be not afraid to fail, that that's okay. And that you should try something. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. Learn from what you did. And, you know, that to me is the biggest thing is to give people space to try something out and then to help guide them, whether it works or it doesn't to the next part couple more questions and then we're going to uh, do rapid fire. Then we'll get you on your way. I mentioned it earlier. You're in the trenches, you know, with your track and field class. And that is intimidating to look at that stadium. <laughs> and then just to know, you know, that you have to be a part of it. Oddly enough, um, you know, I'll say through the training, it wasn't, there were parts like walking into that press conference, uh, which not a fan of, 
um, and just how it, it's done or it was done. And that's another story for another day. And um, that's a part of what we were talking about, just evolving in, you know, storytelling and the questions that you ask. Um, but I, you know, from the program, and, and I'm sure, you know, my Magic Boost teammates would say the same who are now friends, um, you know, there was more confidence. Like we had, you know, confidence going into the media tent and being able to stop and ask questions, but also seeing the athletes smile um, through this track class. You know, I, I saw that you had your students there pushing them to ask questions. How, I don't want to say, where does that confidence come from, but how do you help them develop that confidence to feel like they belong on such a big stage in such a big, you know, arena being, you know, Oregon? Well, one of the great things about being, you know, five minutes from Hayward Field is that you don't have to, you don't start with the Prefontaine Classic. You start with the Hayward Premier or the Pepsi Invitational or the Oregon Relays. So you're there in a smaller place and you get a chance to try on a smaller scale. And as we move up through the season, I mean, you know, you start with those meets and you, you, you build your muscles, right? It's like any sports, right? Like you have to start in the early season and be ready. You know, the analogy I use all the time for interviews is practice pancakes. You know, does the first pancake you make ever come out right ever in the history of pancakes? No, the griddle isn't hot enough or it's too hot. The batter isn't the right consistency. You don't have it all dialed in yet, right? So that first practice pancake, unless I'm totally starved, I throw it out because it doesn't work. And so I find interviews the same way. I set up situations where students can do interviews and have it not matter. If they mess it up, if it feels weird, it's okay. And you know what? You might decide you're gonna use it anyway, right? Like if you're hungry enough, you eat the pancake and you know you can decide what you're gonna do. And then as you go through, what you learn to do is you get better at it. It's like any craft that the more you practice it, the better you get. By the end, my pancakes rock. My pancakes were not so good when I started. So I think that's part of it. The other way that I build confidence is that um, it's the educational name for it is metacognition, which is thinking about thinking and it's reflective activities. So everything that students write in my classes, they also have to write a note. This is what I did well. This is what I wanna improve on the next time. And both parts of that are hugely important. Many students wanna skip directly to, this is what I need to fix. And too much of education is fixing holes. We also need to build from strengths. So students need to be able to say, this is what I did well, so that you know what you can build from and get better at. You know, it's like in your the cathlon, right? You have to know what your key events are to be really good at this. And so once you know that, you're able to figure out how you're going to approach the event, right? You're going to do the training for all the different events, but you're going to figure out how to do it. That is what metacognition in an educational sense can do. So my students write reflections and then they can look back and they can literally see, oh, here's what I did well. And, oh, this didn't quite work, but this is how I'm going to try something different. So there's really a whole there's really a whole way to bring people along. And as you go through that, it brings you confidence. And that to me, um, you know, it's a, it's a proven formula and not just in my class, but, um, you know, a lot of teaching, there's lore about it as in, it's not really research-based. Well, this is how we've always done it. So we should do it like this. Right. And once you start to read the research about teaching and realize what, what, what academic scholarly peer-reviewed research says works and doesn't, it changes your mind. 
I would say that journalism has a lot of lore in it as well. And that if we can really start to look at what works and why from scholarly research, from listening to people who are subjects of the coverage, that we can really build something exciting, something that can really make a difference. What change would you like to see in the sport of track and field and how it was covered? I would like to see um, better news conference availabilities that aren't run necessarily by the meet director or by someone else. I feel like there's a sense that, uh, I don't know, that like the people in the, the people asking questions don't have enough knowledge to ask good ones or something. I don't know where that comes from. I've never covered another sport and I've covered a lot of them where there's kind of this preset, we're gonna have like a little dog and pony show for you at the front. So I wish very much that that would improve. I also think there should be some kind of a space for athletes to not have to be interviewed two seconds after they get off the track, that if they're too tired, they're going, they're rolling through and it becomes a checkoff list. And I understand I'm on deadline. I know you need something there, but I would like to be able to find some ways where athletes feel more comfortable and where there's a way um, to get more in depth about some of that stuff. And I feel like a lot of that you know, and I've done it. I ask tons of rote questions, like you have to do it. But I do think that the sport is, it's such a great sport. Like I love being at Hayward Field. When I interviewed for my job here at the University of Oregon, I flew cross country and I got here in the middle of the afternoon. And the first thing I did was ask the desk clerk at the hotel, where's Hayward Field? And I walked there and it was the first place I went because I'd never been here before. And I knew this was the place. And I think the sport with less heavy handedness at the top could be more accessible to regular people who I think could learn to love it, but we just need to get the athletes to be people. Right. And th that's what matters to me. I agree with everything you said wholeheartedly. That was such a weird, and I'm thankful that, you know, they gave our group, the magic boost groups. So I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, complaining and crapping on everybody because there were some nice people, but there was such a weird feel to that press conference um, with everything, you know, with Sha'Carri Richardson. And, you know, I always talk about, you mentioned the dog and pony show, um, which to me, it was just from the seating arrangement, you know, um, you know, how they were placed. And it's like, that's intentional. Why is the gold medalist all the way in the back? And, you know, the person who didn't make the team, you know, kind of in front and center. And so I agree wholeheartedly. And with the Hayward thing, yeah, when we first got there that day, you know, I, I was like exhausted and tired and, you know, we're meeting, everybody's meeting everyone and uh, waiting for our hotel room. And um, we walked um, from the hotel, which was across the street to Hayward. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is like, this is incredible. And just being that, that part of Eugene is just, you know, truly track town USA. It's just something to behold. Last question before we get to the rapid fire, what is it that you want your students to learn? So pretty much when they leave, what do you hope your students got from you as a professor in your classes? I hope they, 
I hope they got confidence in being able to think. I hope they got, you know, the, the um, analogy I use in class all the time is an iceberg, that an iceberg is powerful because so much of it is under the surface. You can only see the tip of it, but it's what's below the surface is what you can't see. And I feel like my job, especially when I teach core writing and reporting classes, is to broaden their iceberg, to give them a really deep, deep sense of why the work we do matters and some of the ways that you can do it. Um, I don't want to turn out a whole room of lorries like we don't need that like that's just not what's necessary at all. I hope what I do is that they're able to take what I teach them and add it to themselves and be able to come up with something new and exciting. And I, I hope they I hope they felt like they were positioned to not be afraid to think and to think big and to try something different. And that's mostly what I want. I would also like them to put the commas in the right place and like, you know, write a good solid lead and, you know, do a lot of that sort of stuff. That would also be fantastic. But mostly what I really want is I want to make them more confident and more creative thinkers. I didn't know how to write a lead until UCF gave me my diploma. So <laughs> it, it gets when, and it's not even gave me, it's when they mailed it six months after graduation. So it'll happen. It just takes. But what happens, you know, I mean, one of the other things that's important about this, Dom, is what I do is I plant seeds. Like you don't learn on a schedule. You don't necessarily learn because your assignment is due Sunday night or because the term ended at the beginning of, of March. You learn on your own time. So I feel very strongly that what I do is plant seeds and I hope at some point they bloom. And it's the, the one frustrating thing about teaching is that sometimes you never know when they bloom. So I guess I would just say to all your listeners, uh, if even years later, something that mattered to you that a teacher did or anything like that, like there is no better feeling on the planet than getting an email or a note from somebody who says, hey, thought of you because something happened in class or wow, that finally connected or something that is that is um, that is better than gold. It's funny. I, I was going to mention this later in the show, but I told my mom, I've written a few stories since Oregon and since, you know, you and I, we've had a Zoom conversation. We've had several in-person conversations. Every time I write a story, your voice is in my head. No, and it's, and it's because anytime I go to write, it's like, remember what she said and everything. But it has helped me tremendously because um, I've been able to ask more precise questions and then just ask questions that I'm curious about and then ask questions not I have been able to shy away from asking empty questions and stuff like that. So uh, I'm pretty sure I can speak for a bunch of people that say you definitely played an impact. I know it's changed my career in the positive. Um, and with the pancake analogy, I love it. The only person I know to you know ace pancakes on the first try was Matilda. Um, <laughs> other than that, um, yeah, everybody else you know fails on their first attempt at making pancakes. But we are to our last segment called Down the Home Stretch. I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions, answer them to the best of your ability as fast as you can. If you cannot answer them as fast as you can, it is no problem because very few people do. I have to say very few people because as of late, people have taken it as a challenge. Um, Got to give a shout out to Kara Winger, Allie Feller. They have knocked it out of the park. So are you ready? I'm as ready as I'm going to get. Okay, that's good. If there was a food that you had to keep for the rest of your life and had to get rid of completely, what would they be? Well, the best food are chocolate chip cookies and the worst food are hot dogs. I don't even like the fact that they exist and they should not be on the planet. Thank you. Thank you. Wait, do sausages count as hot dogs? 
Well, that's that's beyond my pay grade. I'm not sure. <laughs> Probably they're better than hot dogs. Okay, yeah, because I had one of Ashton Eden's uh, bratwurst sandwiches, and it was the best thing I've ever had. Okay, favorite favorite Olympic moment from the Olympics that you've covered. Uh, Kurt Angle, a wrestler from Pennsylvania, exactly my age, went to the next high school, won a gold medal in um, 1996 in Atlanta and like fell to the map weeping. He won in overtime. I was so excited when I called the office afterward. They said, Lori, are you going to be able to calm down enough to write this? And I did. But it was just so amazing to see someone who I knew that well excel at that level. Favorite TV show that you've binge watched in the last three years? I don't binge watch much, although we just enjoyed We Are Lady Parts, which is about a um, British Muslim female feminist punk band. So I'm going to put that on there. Okay. Dream concert that you've been to or wish you would have gone to? All right, I'm playing piano right now. I'm taking piano lessons. And what I really wish I could go to see is um, like a, there's a woman named Martha, and I'm blanking on her last name. My piano teacher would be Martha Argento, something like that. Anyway, I'm totally mangling her name, but uh, if I could hear her play live because I've been studying her work, that would be amazing. Okay. What is the best era of music and the best era of television? Oh, well, the best era of music is obviously the 1980s. I mean, that's just it. I know Gen X just gets, you know, we're, we're just skipped over. You know, we've like gone from boomer to millennial without, you know, remembering like, hey, hello, we're Gen X here. So clearly 80s pop is the way to go. Who's, who's the go-to, who's the go-to band? Oh my gosh, there's like so many go-to bands, Don. Like you can't even pick a band. It's just like the entire thing. I guess I would, oh. You want me to give you some options? Give me some options and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a yes or no. How's that? Let's go Poison. Let's go Hall & Oates. Let's go... There's a band called Ambrosa. Let's go Billy Joel. Let's go... Oh boy, you too. Somebody... Well, hey, I have, I have a soft spot for Billy Joel for a lot of reasons. I feel like you're skipping like, like the Bangles, who were great. Um, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff. I also got to go with Prince because Prince oh, is the, man. Prince is the Prince, like the King, right? So let's go with, let's add, let's toss him in there too. Okay. This is just a bonus because you just mentioned my man Prince. Give me two, two top two Prince songs that don't get the respect that they deserve. Oh man, don't get the respect. I feel like, well, I don't know, Raspberry Beret was a big one on the band bus back in the day. So I feel like that's not there, but I feel like his stuff does get like a lot of, gets a, gets a lot of love. I mean, you know, if, if the stuff that's on my playlist, if I'm working out or something like that, you know, I always have to make sure Little Red Corvette's on there because it's great. Mine, my two would be Kiss. Uh, he had the quote of the century, act your age and not your shoe size. And then um, I want to be your lover. Okay. Two good ones. Two good ones. I like it. It was a couple more questions. Spiciest hot take, track and field hot take that will not get you canceled. Oh, man. It could be as simple as this deserves respect or anything like that. I would say that, that we need to show all of the field events and not just random stuff later. My hot take is more field event narrative style coverage definitely necessary. 
Amen to that. Amen to that. Last question. Why is Hayward the place to be when it comes to track and field? Hayward is the place to be because of the people who come there. It's because people care about the sport and it's because it, it does, it, look, I banned the phrase Hayward magic in class. I mean, I just banned it. Like, you know, it's, it's a cliche. It doesn't mean anything when you're there, but I will have to say that in any sport that I've covered, that it's the knowledge of the people in the stands who understand what's happening on the field that makes a difference. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh gets football. You go to an NFL game in Pittsburgh, you're around people who understand the game. You know, I've worked in St. Louis, that's baseball town. That's the Cardinals. Those are people who know the game and I would say that the thing about Hayward is that the people in the stands rise to the moment because they know when something's cool happens and it's impossible to not feed off of that. Professor you have just completed down the home stretch you aced it even with a couple of distractions because you mentioned some good bands I had to go further into that definitely appreciate it where can everybody find you? find me well um they can find me at uh sojc track which is my class's website and we will start putting um put, start posting stories on there in april when the outdoor season starts and we're back here um you know that's that's the biggest place to find me right now you can find me on twitter at l shots i'm usually lurking but i occasionally post and it's a good place to be so we can find the work on sojc and you can find my students' work there. Yes, that's the best place to find it. Professor, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, come on this show. If you like this show, do me a favor, subscribe on Apple, Google Podcast, um, Pocket Cast, and Spotify. And if you could leave a nice rating, if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it because it helps the algorithm and it helps other people find the show. Follow us on social media. Instagram, Lactic Acid Podcast, Twitter, Lactic Acid underscore pod. I'm on TikTok, don't know how to use it. Can't promise I'll have it too much longer, but I would like you to follow me on Lactic Acid Podcast. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, shoot me an email at lacticacidpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to talk with you, would love to work with you. Until next time, we will catch you later.